Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to episode 56 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we'll talk about how running has changed within the last 20 years. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational and let the marathon running podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond hey runners welcome to episode 56 my name is letty and i'm here with ryan and we are the hosts of our weekly podcast the marathon running podcast where we try to motivate inspire and bring you education from experts that we consult with all in order to keep you running and keep you happy so today our topic is going to be 16 ways of how running has changed in the last 20 years or so. And I came up with this episode, Ryan, because I like to see the silver lining in things. So right now I'm training for a marathon, aiming for about 65 miles a week. And for me, it's all a mental game. Sometimes I don't want to get up and sometimes it helps me to feel or think about gratitude and be thankful for my body and that I'm injury free. So last week, sometime I woke up super early and it was already humid, but I kind of like the heat. And I was thinking how easy running really is. We live in a place where it's warm. Some would say that living in the Florida and running is a, is a con, not a pro, but you like warm I do like warm because it makes it easy to get out of bed. So I was thinking how easy running is early in the morning here. And then I also started taking mental notes for this episode because I wanted to appreciate other ways of how running has become so easy and use that as a motivator for the days where I'm struggling to run because it's a lot of miles. So now you're referring to past versus present? Yes. So that's exactly what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how running has changed within the last 20 years and how easy we have it now compared to runners before. So I figured maybe that would make a good episode. Okay. So what's what's on your list? What's number one? Well, let me tell you real quick. We have 16 different ones that we came up with. Oh. And you and I are going to talk about the first 11. And then for the last five, I will play you guys a piece of conversation that I had with one of my friends, Jim Lynch, who is the host of the Feel Good Running podcast, whom I was recording with. And our conversation kind of went that way. And uh, so, yeah, we had some interesting topics to talk about because he's been running marathons since the earlier days before GPS raised chips. And so I'll be talking to him about those topics. Sounds good. So let's go back to number one. So number one, the weekly mileage. So according to an article in Runner's World, amateur runners used to run around 100 miles and now it's much less. And when I say 100 miles, I mean 100 miles a week. And I'm wondering if you know why that is. Uh, well, maybe because more people are running, but otherwise, I don't know. Maybe you can fill us in. Yeah, exactly that. There's a lot more people running. So it's not just the 
faster people and also because people also focus a lot more on cross training. So what's number two? Number two is the training. Training has changed. Before people would just run and maybe do a couple of 400s, etc. And now there's all types of training that we have discovered. There's heart rate training, the Hansen method, which is high mileage running, the Galloway method, which is the run walk, um, all kinds of different types of runs, hill repeats, speed workouts, tempo runs, fart legs, long runs, you name it. The Hansen method goes against number one. Yeah. So what's number three? So number three is mental training. So mental training is something that is becoming more and more of a thing. So I think that people nowadays, I guess, are more aware of the mental game or place more importance on it, it seems. It seems like in all sports, they kind of the mental part of the game has become more popular, probably because they have more research and knowledge regarding it. But basically, if you have more information, then you can have objective data as to where your body's at, which might tailor your training differently and theoretically for the better. But I'm sure there's still so much unknown that we're going to learn. Yeah, and I think it's exactly that. I think it's having that data that makes us realize that we're all different, that we respond differently to the same training. And for that reason... Or it allows you to tailor your training better because you'll know where you're at in terms of fitness, whereas before it was more of a guessing game, I guess. Yeah. So on that note, it's really important that you find yourself, if you're looking for a coach, a lot of them have more of a holistic approach and talk about the mental aspect as running as well. And if you want to know more about mental training, we have an episode, I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's episode 39, where we talk to Jill Angie, who does an awesome job with her runners and it's all about the mental aspect of training. Also, there are many book recommendations that you can now read. Of course, I'm going to talk about Alex Hutchinson, who wrote my favorite book called Endure, um, where he reveals the research over the past decade that suggests that physical barriers you encounter are set by your brain more so than your body. So, I interviewed him on our past podcast too. It's a must listen. And I'm also going to link that one. It's episode 29. And hopefully next week, we'll also have another mental training episode coming out with Brian Green, who also wrote a book about the psychology of running. So what's number four? So for number four, strength training. So nowadays, the average runner is more likely to also engage in cross training because they're not focused as much on running. And also because we've been learning that strength training can really help you with injury prevention. I think that a lot of sports, it seems like um, strength training is becoming more popular because of, I guess, the, you know, the importance of it. Yeah. Well, personally, I didn't use to strength train and we just kind of started and I just you know, back in the days thought if you do strength training, I don't want to be all bulky when I run because I want to be lean to run. Yeah, but just because you strength train doesn't mean you're going to be a bodybuilder. <laughs> I guess I automatically thought that. <laughs> so uh, what's number five? So number five is the ease of selecting your races 
And just back in the days, I keep saying back in the days, I guess I'm talking about the early 2000s, you still had to mail out your race entries, you had to print them, mail them, and then wait to see if you've gotten accepted. Nowadays, it's so easy. It's at our fingertips. You go to the race website, it'll tell you if the race is full, and then you apply. If it's not full, or I guess you just register and pay, unless it's one of the six majors. Yeah, I think that online access to things has definitely at least opened it up for more people too that know where races are and easy easier or it's easier to uh, you know sign up and pay for them and stuff imagine all the races before that people weren't even aware of because it wasn't online right i don't even know how people lived like that <laughs> you lived like that you're not, not that young so did i <laughs> what uh is number six so another one is eating. It seems like food used to be looked at as something that gives you energy and drinking was something to take care of your thirst. And that's the end of the story. And nowadays we have all these different diets. We have paleo, vegan, gluten-free, and so much research. And the basic principle that most runners know that they ensure that you have a balanced mix of carbs and lean protein and fats And when choosing carbs, they go for vegetables and fruits and legumes, whole grains to maintain energy that will fuel your workouts. Nutrition research has definitely seemed to come a long way. And hopefully, you know, you have some podcasts regarding with some nutritionists, which is cool. And, and I think you're right. I think that utilizing at least what we know now is helpful for improving performance and everything. And There's still, I'm sure, a lot that we don't know and we will learn, which will be exciting in the future. Yeah, it's just so beautiful that now we have access to the internet and we can just Google stuff. So another one that we have listed here of how running has changed is the fueling during runs. And this is kind of a funny story because you know Ron, my coach, who used to run in the 80s. And when I asked him for advice on what to drink, He kind of laughed and said, you want to know what I drank? And guess what he drank, Ryan? Water. Yep. Water or nothing at all because he was trying to hold out having to grab something to not lose seconds for as long as possible. Yeah, but then his times are not that much lower than the current winners. So how much have we really improved? <laughs> that is so true. Or how fast was he really, maybe? another question you could ask yeah so when we're saying that he didn't want to stop for a few seconds he really ran fast he ran a 209 marathon and that was super fast back in the days and not like it's not super fast now but the fueling is interesting because i feel like the industry it's something that can sell right so with people wanting to run and to get better there is a gazillion opportunities for companies to try to sell their fuel I think that's one of the things that's diff difficult because like uh, the nutrition market or the supplement market, I should maybe should say, is like is massive. So it's definitely hard to decipher what's needed and essential to what's just selling. Exactly. And we have another podcast on that note, and that is episode 23. All these podcasts that we used to do last year have just so much great information. So I'm going to link that in the episodes too. That episode is with Dr. Burns, who studied hydration. And his answer to my big question of 
how important, I mean, obviously it's important to be hydrated, but how important are those energy drinks and all that stuff? His answer was that he personally drinks noon and these other flavored hydration drinks because he likes the taste of them because of the lack of certain evidence that they really do do something for you. That supports like Ron Tab drinking water and still running fast. Yeah, but that's not to say that you do lose salt and all that stuff. I mean, obviously, when you run hard, you're sweating out a lot of salt. So to me, it's more fun to get drink like a cup of Gatorade than just water over and over and over again when you're running. Yeah, and there is no denying, right, that if you do consume something sugary while you're running, you're going to feel a little bit better or you're going to, you know, restore your your lost um, glycogen story. <laughs> glycogen. glycogen story glycogen is a whole nother story glycogen storage yes there you go so what about so what's next let's move on all right eight. so number eight shoes so back in the days there's no denying runners had very limited options when it came to their quote-unquote running flats and those shoes were a lot heavier and less technical i mean if you look at the old pictures a lot of them were made out of leather and then, of course, again, with the explosion of the running industry, you have the Vibrams, the hookahs, you know, the minimalist and the, I guess, maximalists. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's really a money making industry. And we all buy into that. I bought the 4% carbon fiber plate shoes that give you energy return that is proven. And you know what? I do feel like they're much bouncier and they propel me forward. So I would argue that a lot of the manufacturer technology in shoes is probably going in sideways directions more than in forward directions over the years because it seems like, you know, you go for bigger cushioning, less cushioning, um, but really or how much are they improving speed and stuff, strictly from a performance standpoint anyway. And then until recently, when you actually have like legitimate data, it seems proving that, you know, like with the Nike Zoom that actually make people run faster. Yeah, that carbon fiber plate is a game changer. Well, it's more than that. I mean, the carbon fiber plate is just a, a part of it. I think a lot of it has to do with the foam and stuff too that they developed. It's all like, it's interesting. It's all it's all almost like mechanical engineering in a sense. You know, it's, um, you, you want cushion, but if you want efficiency, you want um, to return all the energy possible. So if you put energy into compressing cushion you want to return all that energy back if possible to go forward because any energy that's lost in creating heat or other stuff is is lost and you're just using that up so if you can be the most efficient possible and return every bit of energy you're going to be faster I take that as a green light of me being able to buy another pair of those shoes <laughs> this summer for my full marathon so another one we'd like to talk about is gear. You mean steroids? <laughs> no, I mean running gear. Uh, back in the days, back in the early 2000s, people used to just put on cotton shirts and shorts. And then we learned that there are such things as moisture wicking, polyesters and nylons. And even Nike came up with their own dry fit, which is a polyester nylon blend. Is there data that shows it makes people faster? It doesn't make them faster, but it makes running more enjoyable. Because back in the 80s, people would just wear these terry cloth sweatbands, which I kind of like. They look cute. But you know how wet and soggy and heavy they probably get. 
So then there's other types of gear. Obviously, we talked about the heart rate monitors, which helped us develop heart rate training ideas. You're going to hear me talk to Jim about GPS watches, but we also have our phones, which now can hold all of our music. And then, of course, the wireless earbuds. Is there anything else that you can think about? The digital health monitor stuff, which is kind of along with the GPS watches, but or biometrics, I should say, is a better term for it. Because I think that that's really cool. You can see, you know, with the satellite and the biometric stuff, you can kind of see how your body's responding, how far you went, how fast you went, and have really good records of it. It's almost like, you know, being able to compare and to see what makes you better or worse would be very helpful, I think, compared to in the past, you kind of just do it by feel more. Which is also dangerous because sometimes I feel like you rely on your watch too much instead of listening to your body. Yeah, it's true. I mean, everything's like a pendulum swing, right? Sometimes people go too far one way and it's good to do both. Yeah, exactly. Also, along with the headphones that are wireless, they now have these bone conducting earbuds. You've seen me use them for the last year. What do you think about those? So I think music while you're running is a lot of fun, but... It's also good to be safe where you're not obstructing both your ears with something you can't hear outside noises and other stuff. If you run in an, in an environment that has dangers, which is pretty much everywhere. Yes, which is really why I like those bone conducting ones, because they don't sit in your ear. They sit on your on your cheekbones and through vibration transmit the noise. Yeah, it's interesting. I think part of the, the sound just also gets transmitted through the air too. But, but yeah, you know, it's the way... Some people that have uh, conductive hearing loss here is you you can just vibrate the bone and it makes it so you can actually hear the music just as if you were hearing it through your regular yeah. pathways. Yeah. So if you want to try some of these bone conducting ones, there's a lot of brands out there. Aftershock is a leader in the market. The ones I have are Zulu. Insert had here. <laughs> The ones that I use are called Zulus, which are at a much lower price point. They were provided to me for free. And if you would like to try those, I think they're about 40 bucks. If you use our discount code WGTR, you get 15% off. Okay, last one for you. And then you get to hear from the guest. Yes. So the social aspect, running has changed a lot because people have recognized that it's healthy to run and... Running clubs are happening again, but of course, social media is really big on that because it's so easy with Instagram and even Facebook to find your groups or people that are interested in the same things as you. I, for example, have an Instagram account that I started just for running, and I mainly did that because I didn't want to bore my regular friends and family members with posting my runs on a regular basis. And also we started a Facebook group, you know, just to kind of build a community around this podcast and more. Yeah, I think the social aspect is huge too. I mean, like Strava and things are really cool when you get to like compete with people that are not even like, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise even know, but it adds some competition. I mean, that's why marathons and running are popular in the first place is people like competition, right? So. Yeah, that's right. And we are also found on Strava. 
under Letty Lundy and Ryan Lundy. Although Lundy is not really our last name, but we use that in order to hide from our clients slash patients. So Ryan Lundy and Letty Lundy, that's how you can find us. And now we're going to play our recording with Jim Lynch, whom I already introduced. And with him, we're going to touch the topics of pacing, the chips that you have in your bibs when you run races. We're going to talk about watches and distance tracking, race entry expenses. And then we're going to change topic and speculate a little bit about, well, first, how the pandemic has changed running and virtual running, and then also how it's going to transform running in the future. So let's play the interview with Jim. All right. So I'm here with Jim Lynch. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. I thank you for having me. Of course. The running world has changed so much since we both started running with technological advancements, GPS, and other things such as the shoe industry, the hydration industry, all of that. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like the early days are going back to eight track tapes, you know, uh, and then, you know, advancing to where it is now where you can put, you know, billions of songs on your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's amazing to think about how people that ran in the 80s paced themselves for marathons. I mean, to me, I didn't run marathons until the running watches were already there and I had one on my arm that I was using. But how did people in the 80s pace themselves? They really had a feel for what pace they're running in and finished in such a fast time without all the other stuff that's available. It's more mathematical. You, you would have on your wrist um, all your split times that you would want to hit you know, where you needed to be at mile eight, nine, 10, if you were looking to, you know, if you were at that time wanting to qualify for Boston, um, you know, you'd have that on your wrist and then you would look at your watch and every time you hit a, the mile mark, when you saw the mile mark, you would hit the lap button and that would, that would track it. And so you, you know, you were able to kind of figure it out that way. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was not as, uh, you know, spot on but you know you were right in there you know as far as knowing what your time would be when you finished yeah, you just had yeah. to do a lot more work now you just your watch does all your work for you but imagine doing that work when you're you've been running for 20 miles all of a sudden your math is out the window oh you get loopy <laughs> yeah you definitely get loopy in the head yeah you're like okay uh. <laughs> right right I remember my first 5K was in 2004. Maybe it was a 10K. I don't remember. I didn't care. But I remember starting at somewhere middle of the pack. And when I finished, there were finish line shoots and people were standing there with pencils, taking down time, you know, your time. So they would know what finishing time you had. How did that work for marathons before GPS or tips? Uh Pretty much same way you had that uh, on your bib, you had the bottom tear off. And when you went through the shoot, you would hand them the tear off and they would put it on a ring. Um, I, to this day, the person that I put on the Maui Marathon with, he, he sold a timing business, but I don't understand how that all worked before. Um, it was all gun time. Obviously, there was no chips or anything like that. Right. And, uh, you know, today 
today, you know, it's so automated. A lot of it's automated that, uh, you know, you can watch people run the race and see their split times. And, you know, when they finish, you, you instantly see their finishing time. Um, so it was a lot different. It was all, all manual, manual labor back then. Um, and how they figured it out, I have no idea, but uh, <laughs> they were pretty accurate because when I looked at my finish time that was recorded, when I, I, you know, you didn't have GPS watches or anything like that. I used a Timex Ironman watch and then you had, you know, all your split times on your arm um, that you needed to hit uh, in order to reach your finishing goal that you were, were looking at. Wow. But as you mentioned, it would have been all gun time. So for a race that's a little bit bigger um, with 30,000 people, if you're not at the starting line, you're just automatically going to be running 10, 15 minutes slower because it takes you that long to get to the starting line. You're absolutely right. And my, um, my PR is a 328 something and it was in chicago and it qualified me for boston and i think that my 91 and 92 new york city marathon times were around 334 336 and uh i i know for a fact that if um if there was chip timing in those two new york city marathons that would have been my pr because like you just mentioned it takes good 10, 12, maybe even 15 minutes to get across the start after the gun goes off on, you know, New York is, is a really good example because, you know, you're so clustered on the Verrazano narrow bridge. Yeah. I mean, that's just not fair. And I can't see how people didn't run each other over, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, back then you didn't even think about it because there wasn't technology. So it you know, it was what it was at that I guess, time. Yeah, I guess the year chips came out, all of a sudden people just automatically got faster and didn't realize that they're not actually running faster. They just have a faster recorded time because they don't have to wait until they cross the starting lane. Exactly. And, you know, it, I remember I was living in Virginia for two years and a person that I ran with said, they're coming out with this watch I just ordered. And, and what it does is it links up to the satellites and it'll accurately tell you your pace and all this stuff. And I go, really, <laughs> there's really something like that coming out. And it was the first Garmin watch and it, um, it was oval and it was really huge on your arm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I bought one and I was amazed at that. I'm going, how in the world did this work? And, yeah. uh, and I loved it. And, you know, now I, I always was with Garmin. Now I have an Apple watch and I use that. Um, cause I'm, you know, not as, not as technical or concerned about my times anymore. Like I was back then. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that watch coming out too. And I actually got a watch like that. It was like you said, covered half of your arm and you right. would have to leave it outside for half an hour before it would catch the satellite. So right. if you wanted to run right now, <laughs> that was practically impossible. You had to wait. And then nobody did anything with the data. You kind of just use it as you went because it was too complicated to connect it to any kind of computer. You'd have to have this printer back plug in where you plugged in your watch and then there was no apps 
you know, that was before the iPhone. So you couldn't really do anything with the data anyway. It was just kind of sitting in your watch. Right. You're exactly right. And before that, how I figured out how far I would run is, you know, you finish your run and then you get in your car. <laughs> you drive the course <laughs> that you just ran. Oh, that's I mean, right. It, it, you know, <laughs> you know the, the transition from back then uh, to now is, is amazing. It's, it's really changed a lot. And everything has a huge price tag, just like you were saying earlier, too, with race entries. Race entries, now I signed up for the Boston Marathon and I believe I spent $240 with a $13 insurance just to be able to have a spot in Boston. Right. Um, and that doesn't even include all the other expenses of travel and all that. You're, you're probably looking to run the Boston Marathon now, um, probably depending on how you play it with lodging and everything probably around 1500 bucks to run that race, if not more. It'll come close to that. Yeah. I mean, you can try different things to keep the prices down. One of my founders that even if you don't know if you're going to make it into Boston, book your room and have it be one of those reserve rates where you don't have to pay it until you get there. And right. then you're able to buy or to get a hotel room for around 200. But then if you wait until the day they tell you you made it in, you try to find that same room and it's up to 600, $800. It's crazy. It is crazy. But I remember the Boston Marathon. It was, it was like a light switch turn because you could go and if you qualified, um, usually there was probably maybe at the most a minute or two, you know, buffer that you needed to, to worry about. Um, and you could, you could sign up for the Boston marathon all the way through February. There was a, there was one marathon. It was called last chance for Boston. That was always, uh, they always put it on in February and, uh, and then like one year it just changed and sold out, um, you know, in like, two or three days. And then from that point on, it's just, they've had to adjust the times, uh, <laughs> you know, your qualifying times and all yeah. of that. And, you know, look what happened for this year. Uh, you know, people that had that qualified and, and, you know, were seven, eight minutes, um, you know, more that they would have had to have, or less, like if you were a three you'd have to do like a three twenty two to even have a chance to get in. So things have, man, it's changed. Right. I wonder where it's going to go to. Do you think it's going to continue going this way where running is just going to continue being overpriced and we'll have more and more runners? Or do you think that this is just kind of a, a phase and we'll start figuring out something else for, for health? My opinion is that uh, um, running is transforming now you know what we knew before the pandemic or the way that we viewed running or participated in running is going to be a lot different i think you have a whole new group of people that found running through the pandemic that when you know major races are uh, going back to some sort of normalcy that you're going to see a whole new wave of people that have discovered running 
Um, I think that running is going to continue to grow. If you look at the, you know, the trends of running, um, I think that looking at all the, all the creative apps that are coming out and all the technology and, uh, you know, the, the gear and all that, it's always, you know, reinventing itself. I think we're, I think we're looking at a whole new running world um, that those of us that have been running for years may or may not recognize anymore. Um, I think you're going to see some races go away because they just could not survive the pandemic. They, they, they weren't cash flush to be able to support them through the, uh, you know, the pandemic, but I think you're going to see new, more creative ways to put on races uh, coming out. Now for us, people that have been in it for a while, we may not like that, but the people that are new in it, no, they don't know any different. So yeah, I think, you know, running is always going to be popular. It's a great sport and it gets you outside, keeps you in shape, keeps you mentally uh, fit. It keeps you, you know, in a great mood. It takes stress off of you. Um, and I think a lot of people during the pandemic got through that threshold saying, oh, I can't run, it's boring, and, you know, all of that. I think running has become very creative, and I think it's really attracting a whole new group of people. I feel like you're right with what you said, and perhaps through the pandemic, now we have this whole bunch of people that started running and did virtual runs and just working towards that just purely for your fitness and then perhaps getting a medal as a reward rather than other runners that are striving to see what type of pace they're running. I agree with you on that. I, I, I think, you know, that's part of the transformation through the pandemic of, of the running world. And that's why I think what you and I were just talking about being more creative, doing some of these long virtual runs and doing it more for yourself in fitness um, as opposed to the big group stuff um, is, is really probably the wave of the future. I, I just don't see it going back to where it was, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how these races are put on in, in October, these marathons, Boston, Chicago, you know, Chicago is one of the largest participating races uh, with almost 40, 50,000 people, you know? Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know how it's all going to shake out and you're right. These parties at the end, that was a big thing. You'd make a day of it on a smaller race marathons, you know, you'd, you only, you get across the finish line and get your stuff and pass out on the ground somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But then you'd get back up and party and you'd probably stay an extra night just to be there and be with the running community and, uh, I don't know how it's going to pan out, but hopefully things will still happen at least in some kind of extent, because I can't imagine the disappointment of people training throughout the summer months and then not having a race for all the work you'd put in. Right. And I'm, I'm very glad that uh, you're you able to get up after a marathon, after sitting down. <laughs> That's a monumental task. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. I really appreciate all of this. All right. Have a great day. Thanks you, again. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. 
All right. Thanks again, Jim. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. So Ryan, I want to hear what you think. What is your speculation about how things will change with the influx of runners that started running during the pandemic and are used to virtual runs? Do you think we'll see normal races again? Or how do you think running has changed? I think that like with anything in the internet, it's been kind of a progress towards more availability of doing stuff remotely, all sorts of things, work, fun, everything. And so I think that the pandemic, I think, has forced people's hand a bit in a already progressing kind of environment so that maybe more people will be, you know, open to doing things remotely now that they've experienced it by force. And I think that applies to running as with everything. I think that people also like, though, the social aspect and being with others and crowds and things like that. So I'm sure it'll, I think from pandemic level stuff where nobody's doing it, it'll def definitely increase again. But I wonder if there'll also be some aspects of it that'll stay remote more advanced in a more advanced form than it had before the pandemic. I don't know. You think that like the major races will probably give you also an option to do your race virtually? That's what I was, yeah, some maybe. Yeah, or just not necessarily just major races, but there'll just be more availability of virtual races or the option of a virtual race in addition to the regular race. I mean, think of races like Boston where people would always have to qualify in. I mean, maybe Boston would have, you know, the qualifying race in person, but then a virtual race for people that didn't qualify. They actually do that now. Yeah, so if they'll maybe they'll continue that. And because, I mean, why not let people participate? I mean, you, you don't necessarily... You might still have to restrict the in-person number of people because of just constraints of the city and everything else. So it doesn't necessarily take away from, you know, the people that run the time and get to go in person. But And you could still have, you know, still, oh, I qualified for the in-person event. Even if you don't want to go, you could just do it virtually. That's so true. And especially with the fact that it's a moneymaker and we've seen in the running industry that a lot of people or a lot of companies want to make money by selling you drinks, selling you shoes, selling you stuff that you might not even need as much as they portrayed to be. So maybe virtual runs will be one of those because you know what? There's some really awesome medals and there's a lot of people that like to collect them. And so you and I are different with this where you're more social. So you'd probably rather run in person, but I actually like the idea of a virtual race, like the idea of going to a busy city, trying to find parking, trying to race out in front in the, you know, and early in the morning and and get situated and everything else. I mean, that to me is the unenjoyable part. Like the enjoyable part would be once you're actually doing the running and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm more of like <laughs> an introvert and would be perfectly happy running by the beach as opposed to running, you know, in a crowd of people. But you'd probably prefer the people because you're more extrovert, I guess. Yep. When you just mentioned the parking, the expo and all that stuff, my heart started pounding and I was thinking, oh, that sounds so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I like smaller. Like, I mean, I, I would, I probably would prefer like doing a virtual locally than doing a national race with a bunch of people. Cause I like, I like hanging out with others around. Like, I don't want to necessarily just go by myself, but I like small groups where you like big groups. The bigger, the better. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, so thank you guys for tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed our episode talking about running then and now. And I'll be linking all the mentioned episodes on mental training and my interview with Alex Hutchinson, as well as our hydration 
Doctor podcast in the episode links. And until next week, have a great week of running. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, head to www.runningpodcast.us. And as always, have a great week of running.